0: This is, once again, your friend Ellen Weatherford, and I'm here with our new buddy, my one of my favorite people ever that I have rapidly <laughs> come to develop an appreciation for. We have Dr. One Pagan. Say hello.
1: Hi, how are you?
0: I'm great, and I'm really excited to be talking to you, and I'm really excited to learn about the really cool animal that we have today. Um, but before we dig into this animal, I would like it if you could kind of introduce yourself a little bit and let our buddies at home know who we're talking to.
1: Well, absolutely. First of all, let me thank you for having me on. I'm very excited to be here. I'm a proud nerd, biology nerd, so I, I love talking about what I love. Uh, I mean, it goes with the territory. By profession, uh, I'm a professor of biology at Westchester University in Pennsylvania. I was also a non-traditional student, meaning that I went back to school at 35 for my PhD. So uh, I did my bachelor's and my master's uh, at the University of Puerto Rico. And, and that was in the 1980s, don't tell anyone. And uh, and then I worked after the bachelor's, I worked after the master's. I, I was already married uh, and I had kids. My wife helped a little bit. And uh, I needed to work. I, I had a family. So, but I always wanted to do a PhD uh, and I love science and I got the opportunity to work at a, as a technician at a medical school in Puerto Rico. And that's where I found so many people who actually believed in me, trained me very well in the sciences. And then uh, a collaborator of my mentors uh, in Puerto Rico uh, came to the university, okay? Okay. Uh, this gentleman uh, his name was professor george hess he's uh, he was at Cornell University and he recruited people for their uh, graduate programs so he kind of recruited me I applied I got a scholarship and basically I told my wife is cornell university you know and and then uh, we have two kids at the time so we packed pretty much everyone and and uh, and we went and that was a 35 uh, years old and uh, when i saw cornell at the first uh, for the first time the tower and uh, and everything that was my hogwarts if you know what i mean <laughs> you know uh, i'm a childlike fascination with science And uh, some people outgrow dinosaurs and everything. I never did. Okay. So uh, eventually, I finished my PhD in pharmacology with an emphasis on neurobiology. And we'll talk about how I got into my favorite animal uh, model in a few minutes, I I, I hope.
0: (laughs) You know, it is that payoff of that childhood passion, right, too? It's like, you're just like, a lot of people have an idea when they're a little kid of what they want to be when they grow up, you know, like you want to be like an astronaut or you want to be a ballerina or something like that. And then somewhere along the way, you kind of like, mm, maybe something else is a little more realistic. But boy, when you like to just like get there to get that culmination of that lifelong dream, I think is is just a really exciting idea.
1: No, thank you. And I can tell you a story about that. I don't actually remember it, but apparently when I was about maybe four or five years old, I asked my mom whether God created microscopes. Okay. What kid does that?
0: (laughs) Did she have a good answer for you?
1: Yes, she did. She actually said, well, no, God didn't create microscopes, but gave people the the brains to invent them. And that was a very appropriate answer for a five-year-old. Okay, so uh, again, I don't remember that, but just to show that uh, there was never any doubt that I will end up doing anything, something scientific.
0: And, you know, from what I've heard, Cornell is an awesome place to kind of see that through. (laughs) A lot of the information that that we use when we're researching for this show, a lot of that comes from Cornell.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, No, no, no. It's a great place. Uh, I mean, it's cold, really cold uh, in the winter. Uh, that's actually the first place where uh, I ever saw snow, but but it's a great place. I mean, and I have very good memories and especially from uh, Dr. Hesendero being my advisor. And he passed uh, about maybe three years ago, three or four years ago. He was 90 something, but his mind was always there. He kept working virtually to up to the last minute. So he was a, a scientist. And this
0: journey has led you to the animal that we're talking about today, which is planarians. And I'm really excited about this because this is an animal that I'm I'm fully prepared to admit. I first heard the word planarian less than a year ago. And actually, I'll give people a little bit of backstory here. What happened was about a year ago, we moved into this house that we're in now. And I walked into my kitchen and there's something on the floor. And I look at it and it is a worm, but it's not a worm I've ever seen before. It's brown. It's like a tan brown color. It has a thin black stripe all the way down its back. And Uh and its head is kind of flayed out into this hammerhead shape. Uh And me and my husband are looking at it. And we're like, what on earth is that? I had never seen anything (laughs) like it. We're so, so, so confused. So I get out my phone, of course. I take pictures of it. I post it on Twitter. Somebody on Twitter tagged you. (laughs) (laughs) Ed said, "Check it out," and and gave me the information that it was a planarian, and that was my first time ever hearing of one. That there was one sitting on my kitchen floor, so uh, so I had been following you since that. Um, but Thank you. <laughs> which is awesome because I've I've learned a lot just through like following your your Twitter activity. But we'll talk about that in a little bit. So okay. for people who probably like me a year ago have never heard of a planarian, what is it?
1: Okay, well. Planaria means literally flatworm. Flatworm is a rather wide term because there's many flatworms out there. So the ones that we're going to talk about today belong to a specific uh, type of class of worms that uh, can live in three different habitats, like the terrestrial ones, like the ones you found, marine ones, and freshwater ones, okay? The marine ones are really beautiful. They're very colorful. They're called polyclads. And not only they are beautiful and colorful they they can be uh, they can also be poisonous. They can yeah in general in nature, if an animal that is uh, squishy, slow, not very big, but very bright that stands out in the environment, it can kill you uh, with poison. okay so that that's a rule to live by <laughs> as it were. So the terrestrial ones can also be very beautiful and some of them are poisonous, not the one that you found. Uh, but in Europe, for example, there's some that are like cobalt blue. I mean, they're beautiful, and they are actually agricultural pests because they eat earthworms, and and they can actually wreak havoc with agriculture and activities like that. Now, the ones that I do uh, work with are the freshwater type. Uh, the freshwater type, they are uh, first of all, they're predators. Actually, all planarians are predators and they will eat anything that they can hunt, including each other, okay? So that uh, they're cannibals, uh, even. Many planarian species, which is one of the most, I don't know, uh, amazing things about them, have a very remarkable characteristic. If you cut their, their heads off, they will regrow a new head with a complete brain, fully formed in the right way, okay? So if you can imagine... If we learn how to do that, to reconstitute brains in the right way, imagine people, for example, that have brain damage to a car accident or Alzheimer's or any developmental disorders. Okay, So we don't know exactly how many planarians are able to do that. Not all species can, but many do. And uh, they are master survivors, <laughs> uh, as it were. They are very easy to kill. Don't get me wrong. You can squish them. You can kill them with chemicals. But other than that, uh, there's many characteristics that they makes them. Uh, master survivors.
0: Oh, awesome. We're we're going to get into that in our ratings, because <laughs> if this is your first time listening to our show, what we do is we review and rate animals out of 10.
1: Oh, I've been, I've been following you
0: too. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I'm glad. I feel so famous. <laughs> so with the, the planarians that you study, when you're studying them, what exactly is it that you're looking at in them? Like, what are you trying to learn about them?
1: Okay, so I need to make a confession first, (laughs) if I may. Yeah. Okay? Let's hear it. I came to planarians by accident. (laughs) Because, uh, again, uh, my training was in biochemistry and pharmacology. I never took a zoology course (laughs) in my life. I knew about planarians from high school biology. I knew that you cut them off, they they will regenerate. But I didn't know anything about that. Actually, in, in university, I was not very... Interested in animals uh, at all? I'm sorry to hear. I, I know this is your your thing, but uh, <laughs> but I redeem myself. I redeem myself. When I was doing my PhD, I was doing studying cocaine, an abuse drug, uh, using a cell based uh, system, and I was in a physical chemistry lab. Okay, so we didn't use animals, we didn't use uh, anything like that. Just uh, biochemistry and physical chemistry and pharmacology, of course. I saw a paper. That came from a researcher at uh, Temple University that described how he could get planarians addicted to cocaine. And that actually blew my mind uh, because uh, I immediately saw the opportunity to test some of the compounds uh, that I was testing uh, in planarians. So I went to my advisor uh, uh, and I said, George, we, we have to use the planarians. I can do that for my thesis and whatnot. So, but my uh, former advisor. Uh, God bless him. He was a hardcore physical chemist. So animals, squishy things, come on. No. And he said, actually, well, when you have your own lab, you can do that. And that's precisely what I did.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Get him.
1: <'em. laughs> yeah. So about six months before I graduated, I was hired at Westchester University, which was fate, as I like to say, because As I told you, I began my PhD at 35. I was about to finish it at 40. I didn't want to do a postdoc. I just wanted to go to work. So uh, a little bit before six months, before graduation, I started sending applications to universities. And I like, listen, I have this many papers. I have experience. Uh, I will graduate from my PhD at that time. Would you consider me? and I sent it to five places. Two of those places, I'm still waiting to hear from them. Okay, so that that was about 15 years ago.
0: They're still getting to it.
1: Yeah. Two, uh, two places said thank you, but no thank you. And that's fair. But uh, Westchester University, look at my application, they brought me in for interviews and whatnot. And eventually I got hired. And after the fact, Uh, I was very surprised because, uh, I mean, I was happy. Don't get me wrong. I accepted the the offer and everything. But I asked the uh, now chair of the department what made the difference because they they kind of trust me that I would finish the the PhD uh, and everything. First, they did something a little sneaky. (laughs) When they decided that they wanted to hire me, they called my advisor and told them, listen, we want to hire One. Can you guarantee that he will graduate by the next uh, fall? And he said, yes. Yeah, he's finished. He's right. The funny thing is that when I got the offer, I went to, to George again. Guess what? And I said something inappropriate, but uh, which I'm not going to repeat, but <laughs> I, was ha- I was hired and everything. And he sat back and said, I knew about that a week ago. <laughs>
0: They spoiled it. They spoiled the surprise.
1: Yeah. And then I was hired. And then I asked the now chair what made the difference. And he said, listen, when you came in for your research seminar and your teaching demonstration, because we have to do both. And in the teaching demonstration, they give you a topic of their own choosing, a week in advance, and you have to build a class, a lecture about that. And the person said, listen, you didn't lecture, you taught. And I was like, wow, you know, and that, that was uh, teaching-wise. Then I, I wanted to develop a, a research project. And of course, it was to be uh, about planarians, all right? So, and as I said, I never took a course in them. I didn't know zoology. I didn't know soap. Uh, One thing that I'm kind of good at is educating myself, (laughs) as it were. So I start reading. I'm a bookworm, okay, that comes with the territory. I educated myself on planarians, behaviors, and everything, because most people use planarians for regeneration and developmental biology research. I use them for pharmacology, meaning that I test substances that may may serve as antagonists as it were against abuse drugs okay in my laboratory we test cocaine nicotine several uh, substances and we are actually developing a relatively new field called the pharmacology of regeneration so in a nutshell if you ask me what i do is to give drugs to worms and see what happens
0: I would have never thought, you know, I, I'm finding out now that apparently it's very common for biology classes to use planarians as like little dissection, like lessons uh-huh. in regeneration, stuff like that. But I never had that. That was never anything that I uh, had a chance to do. So I never would have thought to use worms as a research model to see what happens when you expose them to drugs. Um, so that that sounds very exciting. And it sounds like you would you would see a lot of surprising stuff.
1: Uh, Absolutely. In fact, when uh, uh, our very first paper on planarians from my own lab came from an unexpected source, you know that when you do an experiment, you need to do your appropriate controls, right? So, and uh, as any half-decent scientist, I was doing the controls for my experiments. I was testing a substance that did not dissolve very well in, uh, in water, and I was using a specific solvent. So when I ran the controls with just the solvent, we observed something weird. The planarians slowed down uh, in the presence of the solvent. We, we can talk about the behaviors that I measure uh, in them in a moment, but they did slow down. So I decided to stop everything, tell my research students, which as at the time, my very first uh, laboratory consists, consisted of three uh, research students. Three of them were girls. Okay. And this is a message that I have for all the girls out there. So girls can do science and math very well. Okay. So those three women, women—they are grown women right now. One of them is a neurologist, a clinical neurologist. A second one is a PhD neuroscientist. And a third one, uh, the third one is a nurse. So how proud I am of them. But I digress. So We did the experiments with the uh, solvent and it did have certain acute effects on the planarian and we published it. That was at the very first paper from our own research lab. As an aside, the compound, not the solvent, the compound that we began to test, we developed it and it turned out to be kind of an antidote against cocaine in planarians. And it works on rats too. And eventually ended up with me getting a tattoo of the compound
0: <laughs> <gasps> i love that
1: oh, yeah. i'll tell you the story <laughs> and, uh, and i can send you a picture of the, the tattoo don't worry it's in my arm and uh, it's called parthenolite i told you that i have three kids my daughter it's 29 and i have two boys 22 and 18 my daughter wanted to get a tattoo and she wanted to for uh, for me to go with her for support and whatever and she said that why don't you get a tattoo as well? Mind you, I was 54 at the time. That was last year. And I thought about it and I said, well, "Okay." <laughs> okay. So, and I thought about it. And that compound means a lot to me because I, I've written a few papers on that, a book, <laughs> you know, and, and I did it at 55 and we went together. It was a really cool bonding experience. She got a, a tattoo related to psychology. She's a psychologist. And uh, it was fun.
0: Cool scientist and cool dad. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> That's awesome. So now now that we have kind of like an idea of the sort of work that you're doing with planarians, let's start to look at our ratings for these planarians. You mentioned that we're talking about a specific class. Did you say a specific class of planarians?
1: Freshwater planarians of, uh, of various species. Awesome. We only use two of them, which are commercially available. You can buy them from suppliers but they are the freshwater types.
0: Awesome. If you're this is your first time listening, we rate animals, and our first category that we rate them in is effectiveness, which we define for our purposes as physical adaptations that an animal has that let it do a good job of the things it's trying to do. So these could okay. be things, these are things that are built into its body that maybe make them good at surviving, good at evading predators, good at apprehending their own food. Um, so, for these planarians, what would you rate them out of 10 for effectiveness?
1: I'll give them a 9.5.
0: That's pretty good.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, it's pretty good for about a variety of reasons. Uh, let's suppose that they, first of all, the, the ones that I work with, again, they're freshwater planarians. They're small, maybe a couple of inches long tops. Uh, many of them are way smaller than that. And they are worms. They're squishy. They're not particularly fast. These types are not poisonous at all. So what do they do to defend themselves? A couple of things. They hide. That's uh, one thing. They uh, like to be in dark uh, places. And I always, uh, I'm also a science fiction fan, so I like to say that they, uh, they're always in the dark side. <laughs> uh, as <laughs> as it were. So, but let's suppose that there's a fish who gets a hold of one of those planarians and bites a little piece out of it. That planarian will not die. The piece that is left will regenerate into a whole body. Okay? So that lets uh, the worm survive to live another day. And that process, remarkably, can happen for all intents and purposes indefinitely. In some planarian species, there doesn't seem to be a limit for regeneration. And another thing, sorry, they don't seem to get old.
0: Like like ever.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, ever. Uh, some species, uh, the, the markers for senescence are not present there. And many people, not my lab, but many people are studying why that, that is so. Okay? And uh, they reproduce in two main ways. Uh, the usual way. Okay, uh, they are hermaphrodites. They have both sexes in them. But also, depending on the population density, they can latch on to the bottom of the pond or something like that, and they hold on to their life. The rest of the body keeps stretching and stretching and stretching until it breaks. Each half then develops into a new worm. So they have those two types of uh, reproduction uh, strategies. I didn't give them the full 10 because they're... Easy to kill. They can be squished. They can be killed with chemicals. (laughs) Okay. But uh, it's pretty good. I mean, uh, 95% is an egg. So, yeah.
0: So, when you cut a piece off of a planarian, the regeneration works both ways. Both pieces regenerate. So, you now have two?
1: Absolutely. And you can actually cut the planarian in, uh, I don't know, 200 little pieces. And with proper uh, nutrition, and if you leave them alone, eventually each piece will regrow a new planaria.
0: I am so glad that when we found one in our kitchen, we did not try to chop it up. <laughs> <laughs> because you know, I I looked it up, so the the one that we had in our kitchen ended up being an invasive species where we live in Florida. Yes. And so the recommendation from from what I found was to kill it if you found it um cuz yeah. you know fl- Florida is we've talked about this before Florida is like one of the biggest hit places in the US by invasive species um mm-hmm. and so you know this little guy was just running around and and so the thing on it said that we were supposed to to it said humanely euthanize them and I could not bring myself to do it I really I was like I get that it's the right thing to do but I really don't have the heart to do it I know um so I just gave it to my husband I was like here you figure it out <laughs> you do something with this. Um, But I'm really glad I didn't try to chop it into pieces because then that would have made the problem even worse. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So um, you mentioned that they're predators and that they're eating other little things. I'm assuming things that are smaller than them. Where is the opening through which they uh, take their food in? Like how do they eat?
1: Okay. So they have a mouth, but not in the place that you would expect it to be. Uh, they can sprout from near the middle of their bodies, where we would have our belly buttons, okay? Uh, A tube called a proboscis, just like the alien in a movie, something like that, and that can latch on to the prey and suck it dry. So, and I've seen planarians wrap themselves around like water fleece, like like snake, and, and do that, and it gets worse. They excrete their waste products through the same artifice.
0: All right. One door, <laughs> enter and exit. Are you sure that's a real animal? This sounds like a science fiction alien. Well, I, this doesn't yeah. sound <laughs> like something that exists on our planet.
1: No, I promise you, they're real. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it sounds like something you would hear about in Star Trek or something Star like Trek. that.
1: You're my kind of person. <laughs>
0: The thing that I was reading reading about the little worm that I found in my house said that they eat snails, and that was very confusing to me because I was like, how can a worm eat a snail? A snail is very tough.
1: (laughs) Because they can actually insert their proboscis in in the the opening of the snail shell, and they can actually suck it dry from the inside.
0: It's like an ice cream cone that it just has that
1: hard exterior, and you just slurp it right out. Absolutely. Uh, again, they 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 also eat earthworms. They 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 are hunters, uh, and that's part of the reason why they have a relatively highly developed brain.
0: And how is it that they hunt? Like, by what means do they sort of like perceive and detect their prey? Can they see? Can they hear? Like, what is their sensory experience like?
1: And mainly olfactory, uh, as far as I understand it. They don't see very well. They can they can see light and dark okay, the, that differences, but they cannot form an image. Their eyes are too simple for that. Uh, they don't have a lens. They don't have anything like that. So it's mainly olfactory. I suppose that the terrestrial ones, they can actually feel vibrations uh, in the ground and everything, but I'm just speculating uh, this time. But I do know that the uh, freshwater planarians, they can hunt by smell. And it, furthermore, they can uh, flee away from predators by smell. Uh, if you put, for example, the scent of a frog in the water, they swim away from that. Okay, so so they detect things from uh, an olfactory way. And funnily enough, their olfactory organs are located where we would have our ears. <laughs> and so they, they have something called the auricles, and they look like ears, but those are the chemoreceptors that they use to detect chemicals in the environment.
0: Oh, okay. That's pretty cool because I, I would have expected them to just be kind of like, you know, squiggling around on the ground with very little sense of where to go or sense of direction or anything, but they're a little more um, directed than yep. I thought they were.
1: But others have mm-hmm. to be smarter than prey. So that's uh, yeah, the way nature works.
0: That's awesome. So that is a great transition into our next category. Um, for ratings, which for us is ingenuity. We define ingenuity as behavioral adaptations that let an animal solve problems that it faces every day. Or th- these are like clever things, maybe strategies it uses, things that it does with its body to make it do a good job of the thing it's doing. I know that's a super eloquent way of saying <laughs> it. Very sciencey. y um, <laughs> But so what would you give these planarians for ingenuity?
1: I give them a 10.
0: Oh, wow.
1: Because, uh, first of all, they're invertebrates, and invertebrates in general tend to be underrated uh, in in nature, okay? So even uh, when you call somebody spineless, it's an insult, (laughs) okay? So so that's uh, nothing is farther from the truth because, uh, for example, planarians, they have a relatively developed brain with many similarities to our own, not only biochemically and physiologically, but also shape-wise, they have the two lobes that that we have, but there's a difference. You know that in the case of vertebrates like us, we have one brain, two lobes, and one spinal cord. Planarians have two, one per brain lobe, and those uh, spinal cords, they are joined together by nerve endings. So uh, that's part of the reason why They tend to display highly sophisticated behaviors. We already talked a little bit about how they reproduce when the population density is too uh, different or whenever they need it. They hide uh, from predators using light and dark by smelling the environment. They hunt by, again, smelling the environment and whatnot. And we have this, um, by we, I mean the scientific community, they can form uh, memories. And they can be trained to uh, respond to a, a small electric stimulus like you would do with a, with a rat. But even more surprisingly, if you train a planarian to respond to a light or something like that, you cut their head off. When you regrow their head, the head remembers, uh, the, the body remembers. So, where does the memory was stored? It was not in the brain completely, at least. They have many surprisingly sophisticated behavioral strategies uh, to survive. They're again master survivors.
0: And first of all, that's very surprising, you know, that like the where we would expect the neural activity associated with memories to be stored in like where we would assume your head to be, you know, like what we think of as your brain, because we think, well, that's the way it works in us, right? All of your memories and behavior and stuff is stored in your head. But so then like coming across an animal where it's not that way, it's it's stored somewhere else, then that, that is very surprising but also so i want to talk a little bit more about their memories because Mm -hmm. i don't think we hear a lot about memory retention in invertebrates in general particularly the little ones you know like people talk about memories and and learning in and and stuff like that that's a little bit bigger but you don't usually hear it hear about it in the little guys so how long can their memories last and like how complex can they get
1: it's. It depends on the species. Uh, granted, they, they don't recall for a long time. We're talking about weeks, maybe. Uh, their training, as far as I understand, I don't run those kinds of experiments, but uh, based on my readings, that's kind of kind of the limit. Okay, they also uh, don't remember exactly. Very sophisticated things. uh, Okay. Meaning in a funny way that they cannot solve an equation or anything like that. But then again, neither did I at some point in my life. So
0: I was going to say, like, I can't dock them too much for that. (laughs) Yeah.
1: But they can actually uh, remember. uh, And that's, uh, again, another characteristic of survival, Uh, because if they at the very least know and remember that uh, a dark place is safer for them and a lighted place is a little more dangerous sometimes that's enough to allow them to survive. So, uh, granted, they are not capable of, I don't know, complex behaviors or solving mazes and things like that. But yeah, they, they have a pretty good memory for, for a brain that it's, uh, I don't know, a couple of cubic millimeters. Uh, big. They're
0: They're packing a lot of power in a small little device. So you mentioned earlier that you were looking at the responses they were having to different chemical stimulants like cocaine, and the different solvents that you were using caused them to like behave differently. I want to kind of talk about that a little bit. Like, How are they responding to these different chemicals?
1: Okay, so basically in my lab, we use several behaviors to measure the response of a chemical. Planarians glide, and they glide at the bottom of the, of the dish or at the bottom of, and, and that's how they move. There are substances that can speed them up. There are substances that will slow them down. And we can actually quantify uh, those movements. Some other substances, when they are given at relatively high concentrations, they cause seizures. The planarians begin to twitch. And you can count how many twitches per concentration. So you can quantify that. Also, we can take advantage of the preference for dark places against light places. We can get a petri dish, cover half of them. Uh, with black electric tape. And when you put a planarian there, it will spend about 80% of the time in the uh, shaded side. That's actually a very interesting model for people uh, who study planarians as a model for anxiety, believe it or not. Because when they gave them antidepressants, if that doesn't affect their motility, But they spend more time in the light side, Hmm. meaning that they are more relaxed. This is a phenomenon that is very common in rats. Rats react in that way. Also, as far as abuse substances uh, are concerned, when you give them uh, nicotine, for example, you put nicotine in the water or cocaine or any abuse drug and you leave it there for a certain period of time and you take it away, they react as if they were addicted. They get the shakes. They start shaking. They get. They start going like head pops, like uh, looking around for, for something that is in there. They swim like crazy. They go corkscrewing. Uh, so, And we can quantify those behaviors to say in a rather anthropomorphic way that they were uh, addicted. So my own line of research is to induce those behaviors uh, in the planarians and see if my compounds can prevent or rescue the, uh, the planarians from the abuse drugs. Eventually, over time, they will get back to normal, to their own peaceful gliding and everything. But th- that gives us a very good model to at least behaviorally uh, try to ascertain the effect of abuse drugs. And actually, one of the things that I'm trying to get into now is to go back to my biochemical roots, and try to analyze the specific receptors in the planarian brain responsible for the effects, uh, the effects of cocaine, nicotine, things like that. Because even though the nervous system of planarians is very similar to ours, there are some fundamental differences bio- biochemically. Some receptors uh, in in human can make a human more active, but in the planarian more relaxed. So we we have to study them in that way, which is exciting. Because that's what science thrives on, uh, on something unknown to be discovered. (laughs)
0: that's always the part that gets me really excited I I, I say this a lot on the show because a lot of times when I talk to guests a lot of times the answer is I don't know and that's my favorite (laughs) is because that's like that's still left out there unsolved so that's still an opportunity for learning and this is another kind of maybe it's a, a weird question but within the planarians how much like variety is there in the behavior from one planarian to the next in terms of do some of them prefer different things from others of the same species like it, i guess what i'm asking is do they have personalities
1: that's an excellent question uh, and the answer <laughs> and the answer is yes really uh, uh, because in a normal population you you get a thousand humans okay you know that uh, there's going to be a variety of responses some people will like coffee some people would like tea Some people would like, I don't know, root beer, (laughs) okay? Things like that. Even in a clonal planarian population, okay, meaning that if you cut a planarian in two, let them grow, then you cut each half in in two, so you have four. You can get a, a, a clonal population. They're clones of each other. And yet they will express their own behaviors because even though their genetics are the same, the specific connections in their brains are not in the same way that, again, uh, if you had a, an identical twin, you are very much like your twin in certain things. But one of you may like one uh, red and one of you may like blue. And that's a reflection of the specific makeup of the brain. So, yeah, they display, again, their own, for lack of a better word, individuality or personality, as you said.
0: I guess that's probably, you know, something that you want, you know, like over time, in order to like progress evolution, you want that variation, right? Like you don't want every single one to be exactly the same. Otherwise, you're not going to progress at all. So I like that, you know, even though there are so many differences between how our brain works and how their brain works and how our spines are oriented and how their nervous system is oriented, but there's still some overlap.
1: Exactly. It's common ground. And that's why we can do biomedical research. We have to, to understand that all life on artists related and that's why we can do research on animal models uh, and that's controversial but but it's a necessary thing to do uh when done humanely and that's part of the reason why i work uh, in worms too because i, I would feel very uh, reluctant to do research in rats and god forbid monkeys uh you you know so you know where i'm coming from <laughs>
0: Yeah. You know, you mentioned that you didn't come from a background of zoology or or didn't intend to, like, work closely with animals. But I feel like planarians are a good gateway animal. It's like, if you're not already into animals, it's like, okay, well, here's one that is really cool and it seems like an alien. So it doesn't seem like an animal at first, but yeah. it'll get you there.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And they are, uh, I mean... I'm very fond of them <laughs> because uh, I, I personally believe, uh, and that goes to to the to the next rating that we're going to talk about soon, that they're very cute. <laughs> okay, <laughs> and and that's again is subjective, but you know, uh, I think many people would agree with me in that semi-professional <laughs> assessment.
0: <laughs> yeah, so the the one that we found, you know, at first glance I don't think I would have described it as cute because I was a little bit confused by it and not okay. expecting it to be there. It was of a very pleasant like sort of very aesthetically pleasing shape, but I've seen a lot of the ones that like you post pictures of and they they're different. They're a different shape. They have sort of an yep. arrowhead sort of shape to them and is that the same like is that like you said the two lobes of the brain that are just making it flare out like that
1: yeah in many species yes most of them are are like arrow-headed they are also cross-eyed uh for some reason uh most of them nobody knows why and uh but some of them they have different head shapes uh they some of them they're you describe the terrestrial planarians as hammerheads Mm -hmm. and that's very much uh descriptive There are, I don't know if I sent you the picture of that, but there's a freshwater species that are hammerheads too. And they regenerate weirdly. Remember that I told you that they varied in their ability to regenerate? The uh, hammerhead planarians, the freshwater ones, if you cut their heads off, they regenerate their heads, but tiny heads. (laughs) Oh, little ones. Yeah, Yeah. little tiny heads. Do Do you remember the Men in Black movies? (laughs)
0: i was a kid i was like a little kid (laughs) but yes i do remember them (laughs) okay
1: so there was one of them that one of the aliens had a small head of himself Mm -hmm. sprouting at the side so the the hammerhead planarians they regenerate their heads in precisely that way tiny heads and it's really funny i wish i had a picture of that one but i promise you when I go back to the lab because I had to close my lab because of the worldwide situation. Uh, Right now I'm I'm teaching online, but I promise you if I get a picture of that, I'll send it to
0: you. Oh, yes. So, Do they grow back to their original size eventually, or do they just stay tiny?
1: Eventually, yes, but it takes a lot longer. For example, Mm. the brown planarians with the arrow shaped head that I usually work with, they can regenerate a full head in a week as if nothing happened. Moreover, their, their heads, they glide happily. They, get, they don't seem to be affected by, by that, by, uh, oh, I'm decapitated. No, they don't say that. <laughs> they, they, they keep uh, gliding. But the hammerhead ones, they take longer. Uh, it takes longer, about a month. It depends on the specifics.
0: I was just thinking about the being able to regenerate their head probably works well in conjunction with their mouth not being on their head because if their mouth was on their head, they would have to go a week without being able to eat anything. So I imagine if their, mouth, if their head is cut off, they're like, well, I could still eat, so I might as well just keep it rolling.
1: Yeah, th- that makes uh, sense uh, evolutionarily. Yeah, I've never thought about that. Thank you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I promise this is the last weird question about their heads regenerating.
1: Oh no no, but you, you <laughs> keep, keep going. <laughs>
0: um because when you said that they grow back smaller that just like that it was like a like a flower that just bloomed like a hundred more weird questions is that like every time after that their head will regenerate smaller like does that limit the amount of times they can regenerate their head maybe it would work better if i explain so you have a, a regular planarian that has never regenerated its head its head gets cut off that head comes back smaller Okay. If that head then gets cut off, does the next one regenerate even smaller than that? Or is it like a one consistent size?
1: Okay, I'm going to give you your favorite answer. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I've never tried that experiment, but you're actually giving me very good ideas for it <laughs> when I go back, go back to the lab. Because uh, the, the thing is that there seems to be a variation in the ability of different species of planarians as far as their head regeneration abilities. Some of them are very good at it. Some of them, as I said, are so-so. Some of them do not regenerate at all. And there's been a series of research from other research uh, groups that they can identify the genes that are responsible for regeneration in one species of planarians. They put them in a planarian that does not usually regenerate. And they make that planarian able to regenerate. Mm. So, so it's fascinating. I mean, that topic is fascinating. But and uh, but that's not something that I do in my lab. Uh, I want to learn how to do it. I want to learn how to do those kinds of uh, biochemical experiments.
0: Uh, it reminds me a little bit of axolotls. Yep. It Reminds me a little bit of that, but it seems seems like that, but they've refined the technique like even better. Cuz I know there are some like axolotls kind of have a limit. Like you know, you're not going to cut one in half and get two axolotls, right? But it reminds me a lot of that. Are there any sort of similarities between the processes?
1: Uh, they seem to be there studying that. And uh, and again, axolotls are uh, are remarkable. I agree with you because first of all, they're vertebrates. Uh, okay, so they're much closer than planarians to uh, us, okay? And that opens the door of, again, I don't do that research, but I know researchers, scientists uh, who do this type of research with the objective in the future to somebody who may have their hand amputated because of a tumor or something like that to regrow limbs. Humans, we cannot do that, but people are doing research aimed at that uh, at some point.
0: Something that we talked about when when we talked about axolotls was was that it reminds me of Deadpool, which applies even more when you said that they grow back the little tiny head because in the Deadpool movie, he like grows back his hand, but it's tiny. tiny hand. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if they got inspiration for that from the Planarians.
1: Who knows? Who knows? I love Deadpool, by the way. He's highly inappropriate, but it's really funny.
0: Just a very quick aside about Deadpool since we since we stopped there along the way. Um okay. <laughs> we were in the movie theater watching the Deadpool movie and In the middle of the movie, at some point, he is talking to somebody and he is reminiscing about some mission they went on that culminated in something happening at the TGI Fridays in Jacksonville, Florida, (laughs) which is where we are. And so me and and Christian looked at each other and we were like, what? (laughs) What did he say? Jacksonville, Florida is not the kind of city you hear referenced ever we looked at each other in just complete shock and then after when we were walking out we were like you know what i bet it was one of those things that they do in movies sometimes where they'll include a scene where they will edit the scene based on what city the movie is being played in where like they'll send a different copy out to different cities that have a line swapped out to like localize it. We were like, that's gotta be it. Like they just edited it and like whatever city you're in is the city that they say in that scene. And we looked it up later and no, it was, it was in reference to Jacksonville, Florida. And we were like losing it. I'm (laughs) sure if we were like a big city that people knew about, we wouldn't have thought twice about it, but we were (laughs)
1: it is fun. Out. <laughs> it is fun. Now that you mentioned your your city, can, can I say hello to a friend?
0: Of course. Yeah. Okay. I don't so, I don't know if your friend listens, but yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, no no, I'll make sure he listens. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> no, uh, I want to say hello to Eddie uh Sergeant Eddie Reyes, a retired US Army. Uh he's my best friend since like 30 something years. We uh were college buddies since 1980. None of your business. And uh <laughs> and he lives there with his wife, Kaori, and their son, Alex. So, so hello, guys.
0: So, the last thing we were talking about before I got distracted was we were talking about their little heads. And you mentioned that it's very cute, and that brings us into our final category to rate planarians. This is aesthetics. And this, you can be as arbitrary and objective as you want. This is purely your opinion on aesthetics for the planarians. What do you give them out of 10?
1: Of course, I am very biased, but you gave me permission to be biased. So out of 10, I give them a (laughs) 12.5. They're cute. Uh, Of course. Yeah, because, I mean, they are really cute. You just got to admire their their structure, their uh, physiology, their biochemistry. Some of them, they actually don't look traditionally cute because some of them, they look essentially well like science fiction monsters. And, and I'm sure to their prey, they look like that, okay? But what's not to like about a squiggly worm with googly eyes, uh, okay? So that, 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 that's one thing. And second, many of them are, again, brightly colored. Uh, many of them, they have different shapes. Their adaptations are remarkable. So at many different levels, again, at 12.5.
0: I think that a lot of people, when they think of worms, uh, the sort of knee-jerk reaction is to associate them with like icky things, right? Like, Like worms are always assumed to be dirty and slimy because I think usually people are thinking of earthworms. Yep. Which honestly, earthworms are not that gross, y'all. <laughs> nope. If you look nope. up close to them, they're kind of cute too, a little bit, if you really like look at one. Absolutely. But so I think that looking at some of the really cute little head shapes and, and silly eyes of the planarians, I think could win some people around
1: to teamworm. Yeah. You
0: mentioned that some of the marine ones are like brightly colored. What kind of like coloration do they come in?
1: A wide variety. You you can see them uh, uh, blue, red, green, uh, orange, striped. There's, a, a, again, a wide variety of polyclats uh, out there. And I consider them some of the most beautiful animals in the sea, with the possible exceptions, uh, exception of, oh, brother, I forget which ones they are, but they look like bunnies.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: Th- those are prettier. I, I got it. Uh, but but polyclads Polyclats are beautiful, uh, most of them at least.
0: Is there any sort of relation to like nudibranchs?
1: Not that I know of. Uh, not, not not a close relationship, that's for sure.
0: I was thinking, because when you're talking about like being bright and colorful, of course, I'm thinking of like the, the pretty little nudibranchs that you'll see swimming around sometimes. They're always the ones that everyone likes to post beautiful pictures of. Yeah. Are there any, you mentioned that like they, they have this, to be brightly, brightly colored, to indicate to their predators, like, don't eat me, I'm very poisonous and you will die. Uh-huh. Are there any posers that imitate that? Like, I know with a lot of poisonous animals, sometimes another animal that's not poisonous will evolve to, like, mimic it. Is there anything out there like that? Like any sort of uh, planarian imposters?
1: You, may, you you ask the best questions. <laughs> uh- I'm, yeah. I'm sorry
0: yeah. if this is a weird one.
1: No, it's No, no, no. Don't be sorry because first of all, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know the answer, but I suppose that can be the case because that's a rather common phenomenon in, in nature, as you said. And uh, wow, you're making me think so hard. I, I like you. Thank you. Uh,
0: I, I'm, I'm sorry. I always try to tell people like, I'm not going to stump you. <laughs>
1: Don't ever apologize, Don't ever apologize for putting ideas in my head. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I, I I love thinking
0: it's something that I like to tell people that maybe don't have a connection to um maybe there's not anybody that they know in their lives who's a scientist. Something I like to tell them is like, you can just go talk to them. They're super chill. Like you can just, you can just get on Twitter, get on Instagram, get on whatever social media you like to use. You can find a scientist and you can ask them questions. And even if they're dumb, they'll still be nice to you. Like, like (laughs) even if your question doesn't make any sense, they will still be super nice to you. And you know, that has been like one of my favorite experiences, like just being able to do this show and being able to talk to, to experts and pick brains and get, crazy answers to crazy questions um, because yes. I found that that's my experience is that, you know, like people like to ask questions and people like to share knowledge.
1: Absolutely. that That's, uh, I mean, we love talking about the things that that, that we do. Uh, I mean, that comes with the territory. I have the best job in the world because, you know, uh, as a professor, I get paid to read about what I like. I'm supposed to talk about what I like and the students have to listen to me. So, you know, and and again, it's, yeah, you're absolutely right. If you ever, uh, any of your listeners want to uh, approach a a scientist, don't hesitate to contact uh, any of us. Uh, As again, there's going to be some not so nice people. There's going to be really nice people. But for the most part, scientists are nice people who want to talk to you.
0: I know there's a lot of people out there who like their specific function is communicating science and science communication. I think it just like through the prevalence of social media, has just become so much more accessible. You know, like you don't have to necessarily um, enroll in a enroll in a class and pay tuition at a university to hear from a scientist. You can go on um, like Skype a scientist, or you can go on social media and connect with one. My experience has been. Delightful. Everybody that I have corresponded with so far that, you know, comes from their uh, field of of science has always just been super, not only like receptive, but proactive about, like, oh, you asked me one question. Here are 10 other things you might want to know about. (laughs) Yep. 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 It's very exciting. And I know that so so you have other than I, I know that you've been kind of making the rounds lately, you've been doing a lot of science communication. You were on ologies very recently, which was really cool. Um, it's a little bit less safer work than our show. But if anybody wants to hear a little bit more, they can while their kiddos aren't around, they can go listen yeah. to ologies. Yeah. But you've also done a lot of other really cool work. You've got books out there and stuff. Why don't you talk a little bit about some of your other work? that's floating around?
1: Uh, Sure thing. Uh, Well, you're absolutely right. Science communication has blossomed uh, in the last few years because of blogging, podcasts, uh, you know, all these type of things. I started blogging uh, almost 10 years ago. My blog is uh, predictably uh, titled Bold Scientist for obvious reasons. Uh, Those uh, of your listeners who haven't seen a picture of me know that I have a beautiful bald head. So that's, uh, uh, that's where the name comes from. It's boldscientist.wordpress.com. And I'm uh, also at Twitter, at Bold Scientist. So I've been blogging about general science uh, for almost a decade. And I like to do it in an accurate, precise, yet respectful way. I don't like patronizing people. Uh, because anybody with the uh, appropriate interest, can learn science. Science is not just for a few selected priesthood or anything like that. No, anybody can be a scientist. Anybody can do science. So in 2012, I began toying with the idea of writing a book. And that meant a lot to me because I've always been a bookworm. Because again, uh, it comes with the territory. But I, I thought about writing a book. So I again went and educated myself. So I don't have an agent. I don't know anything about that. But I learned that academic presses they can accept proposals uh, without an agent. So I did my research. It, it was going to be about planarians. That that's uh, the, the first book was going to be about planarians. So, and uh, I sent a proposal to a few places, and I I said, listen, I've never written a book. I've written a bunch of papers. I have. This academic preparation. I'm thinking about a book on this topic. Uh, what do you think? Okay. And again, just like when I applied to to PhD programs, some uh, to for jobs, some people they said thank you, no, thank you. But a rather unknown publisher called Oxford University Press <laughs> <laughs> picked up uh, the book, and that was my first book titled "The First Brain: The Neuroscience of Planarians." And even though it's from an academic press, that book, uh, it's popular science. I used the little worms that I love as an excuse to explain neuroscience and pharmacology to the general public. Then from, from that, I got the writing bug bad. And uh, my second book was titled, uh, is titled Strange Survivors. That was from Ben Bella uh, Publishers. Uh, this one uh, is about surviving strategies in nature that go beyond paws, claws, things like that. I talk about electricity. I talk about venoms. I talk about cooperation. And I talk about regeneration. Planarians are in that book, too. Now, from Bembella Books, there's gonna my third book is coming uh, in 2021, and you're going to love the title. It's titled Drunk Flies and Stoned Dolphins.
0: Oh! Um, You already have my attention.
1: (laughs) Uh, And it's about how non-human organisms engage in recreational intoxication. And uh, I'm having a lot of fun writing that book because I I, I mean, uh, I I found so many examples uh, of animals that actually engage in seeking psychoactive substances uh, in nature and self-medication in a real sense we learn how to get medications from nature by observing animals and, and the type of plants that they ate, uh, all these type of things. And that's kind of what, what the book is about. And I have a couple of more projects in the way that I can tell you when the time comes. But one of them is about uh, alternate ways of thinking about a brain. And a colleague asked me to co-write a book with him about bioelectricity, which is yet another uh Think that uh, it's coming up, and I'm I'm having fun explaining uh, science to the general public, and I'm doing my little part to educate the public because we live in an increasingly technological society, and yet relatively few people know what science is and how it works, and and this is essential in in our times. And of course, I know I'm preaching to the choir here. I mean, to to you and your listeners, but. But it's a very important thing.
0: And we could have the next uh, little one sitting out there, you know, thinking about, you know, maybe I want to be a scientist, you know, could just hearing the voices of people that have experienced it and lived it and lived like the science life. I think makes it seem like a more attainable goal. So uh, for people that, you know, want to follow you on Twitter, you're on there a lot. You're you're super friendly and super easy to talk to. <laughs> um, so I would suggest that anybody do so if you have any further questions about planarians that did not pop into my brain while we were chatting here. But so this has been just really delightful. Um, and I've, I've had a lot of fun learning
1: about planarians. So, so have I. <laughs> Thank you so much for the opportunity. And thank you so much for the the work you do. Aww. We need people like you. And uh, and again, you you are fun, you are delightful as well. <laughs> and God bless. I mean, <laughs> thank you. Of... I, I
0: really appreciate that. You know, I I so I don't come from an academic background. So I'm I'm definitely coming from like the general public's perspective. Like that's me. <laughs> I just have a microphone.
1: <laughs> but you're interested. You have the brains to do it, and you have that curiosity that cannot be taught
0: <laughs> oh do go on <laughs> well i appreciate all the time you've spent with us here today um i'm gonna go ahead and let you go i know that you are a busy guy you're in high demand you're quite popular <laughs> so i will set you loose but thank you so much for spending this time with us today
1: thank you so much stay healthy and safe and my best to you and your fam.
0: thank you you too bye
1: bye